are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I'm also an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I want to interact with a video by our good friend Leighton Flowers at Soteriology 101. It's hard to believe that back in 2015 is when I first interacted with Leighton. So it's been almost nine years that we've been interacting and I've been trying to understand provisionism and I feel like I have a pretty good handle on it. And so what I want to do is I want to interact with one of his short videos. I Some of his videos are two and a half hours long and they come out almost every day and it's hard to to keep up. And so sometimes I just go to his shorts and this one is off of the YouTube channel of Soteriology 101, why Genesis 50 does not teach compatibilism. Why Genesis 50 does not teach compatibilism. And so basically what Leighton is going to argue, and we're going to listen to his two, to his two main arguments here in just a moment. He basically argues that Calvinists use Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 as a proof text for what he calls theistic determinism and that there is another way to interpret this passage. Now, let's just give you the passage. This is at the end of the book of Genesis. This is after Jacob has died. His sons who had betrayed Joseph, their younger brother, left him for dead in the pit. He was sold into slavery. This is many years later. Joseph has been exalted as the prime minister of Egypt. He's reuniting for the second time with his brothers and, and basically, Joseph says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, let's listen to Leighton Flowers' two problems with our interpretation of Genesis 50. Now, in this YouTube video, he's interacting with Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. And so he's responding to how uh, James White has addressed this issue with Leighton. So let's just listen to the two um, main arguments. He's going to summarize his two arguments um, basically in how he thinks we faultily or we erroneously interpret Genesis 50. So let's listen to what Leighton has to say. But who determined the brothers' intentions on Calvinism? God. In summary, there are two underlying problems with the Calvinist claims about this passage. One, proof that God intends an evil event to happen does not prove that God determines all evil events that happen. Two, proof that God intends an evil event to happen does not prove that God determines the motive or desire of all the parties involved in that event. Therefore, the narrative of Genesis 50 cannot be used to uniquely support the theistic determinism underlying the Calvinistic system. Okay, let's interact with what his two arguments are there. So let me restate those. His problem. So his first issue is that proof that God intends an evil event to happen does not prove that God determines all evil events that happen. 
So basically he's saying that just because there's one verse that teaches that God may have intended an evil event to happen, i.e. the selling of Joseph into slavery, does not therefore prove that all evil events that have ever happened are determined by God or are part of God's decree. Now the problem with this is that there are clear passages that teach that God does all things by his sovereign decree. If an evil event occurs then why didn't God stop it from happening when he could have? His mere permission of an evil event to occur shows that he is still sovereign over it. And so the scriptures clearly teach that God's decree before the foundation of the world is free, unchangeable, and powerful. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am not... (laughs) Remember the former things of old, for I am God... And there is no other. I am God and there's no no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my purpose shall stand and I will accomplish all my intentions. Now, I've addressed this passage numerous times over the years. This is probably one of the most important passages on God's sovereign decree absolutely, powerfully, unchangeably. Notice that God declares the end from the beginning. It's not just that God predicts or God guesses or God knows. He actually declares it, meaning that he sovereignly decrees it. And then he also says, my purpose shall stand. I will fulfill all my intentions. And so God has a sovereign decree. It's an unchangeable decree. It's a powerful decree that he has established before the foundation of the earth that he's going to accomplish. And then Paul echoes this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Christ we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things out according to the purpose of his will. God works all things out according to his will. This sovereign decree that was ordained before the foundation of the world. And so, yes, the Bible teaches that whatsoever comes to pass, God has decreed it. Not just a few events like the selling of Joseph or the crucifixion of Christ, but all things that come to pass are part of God's sovereign decree. And so that's our answer to his first objection. He would basically say just because there's one example in the Bible doesn't mean that this is a universal truth that all things happen that way. And we would say there's enough evidence in Scripture to teach that God has a sovereign decree and that all things do come about because of his sovereign purpose. But the second issue is the one that I really want to address in this podcast. And so this is the second uh, argument or uh, problem he has with our understanding, what he calls the Calvinistic understanding of Genesis 50-20. He says this, proof that God intends an evil event to happen, event, does not prove that God determines the motive or desires of all the parties involved in that event. So he would basically say that God can intend an evil event to happen, but God does not work in the motives or the desires to bring about that evil event. In other words, the the selfish desires of the brothers, the pride in their hearts, the hatred, the anger in the hearts of Joseph's brothers, that was not part of God's sovereign decree. God had no part in that. And so this assumes libertarian free will on the part of those brothers. But we have to ask a question. 
Where do those sinful desires or motives come from? That pride, that anger, that envy in the hearts of those brothers. And so here are two huge questions that have to be asked and answered by the provisionists. Did God ordain the fall of Adam in the garden? Or did he merely permit it? Did it happen by accident? Or was it part of God's sovereign decree before the foundation of the earth? And then secondly, did God ordain the effects of the fall? And what are the effects of the fall? Namely, total depravity, total inability, slavery to sin. Did God ordain the fall and the effects of the fall? And so can God ordain sinful actions and attitudes of the heart while not being the direct cause? That's that's the real point of contention. So let's ask some questions about motives or desires or, 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 or the, uh, the pride, you would say, the selfishness of these brothers. What are the motives and desires? Let's just talk about an unregenerate person who's not been transformed by the Holy Spirit and is a new creation in Christ. Let's talk about an unsaved person, a lost person. Does a sinner have a choice over his or her fundamental nature? In other words, are our choices determined by our power of contrary choice and nothing else, or are our choices determined by our nature? Do we inherit a corrupt nature that makes us slaves to sin? And we would argue, yes, we have no choice over our nature. We are born in Adam. We have inherited total depravity and total inability, which makes us spiritually dead and unable to do anything good or positive toward Christ. And so provisionists reject total inability. They reject spiritual deadness. They hold to libertarian free will. And so does a sinner have a choice over his or her desires, the unregenerate? Do do our desires merely influence our choices? Can we choose against our desires? Or do we have this proclivity and nature that leads us to commit the sins that we commit because of these desires that are inherent to us in our sinful state? Does a sinner have a choice over his or her state affairs or life circumstances? Do we control where we were born, into which family we were born, which period in history we were born, how much exposure to the gospel we have? Those are things that are predetermined even before we are born. We have no control over those life circumstances that we're born into. And so here's the fundamental difference between the two views. We as Calvinists or in the Reformed theology, we understand that a sinner has a fundamental nature before regeneration that is dead in sin and morally and spiritually unable to come to Christ or do anything positive for God. And as such, our desires are fallen. And we choose to do what we do based upon our nature and our desires. So our actual choices are not free in the libertarian sense, but our choices are determined by our nature and our desire, resulting from the fall that God ordained and those effects from the fall that God also ordained. And so the provisionist would say that a sinner is affected by the fall. They're stained with sin, but they're not totally unable to come to Christ when called by God. 
they have libertarian free will to respond positively to the gospel appeal. A person's nature, their desire, their life circumstances may influence those choices, but they do not fundamentally determine them. And so the assumption in the provisionist view is that God can't hold people accountable for their sinful attitudes and actions unless they have libertarian free will to do otherwise. God cannot determine choices. God cannot determine nature. God cannot determine anything and then that be sinful and then the sinful person does what God determined and then God turns around and holds them accountable. But they cannot escape the divine decree. They have to have only God merely permitting things to happen in their understanding of libertarian free will. But in the end, it does not get God off the hook. So Leighton's major problem is that God would be unjust, unfair. It would impugn God's character to causally determine the brother's pride or selfishness or envy and then turn around and judge them for that. God is unjust to judge someone for sin he ordained they would commit. And earlier in that video, he basically said that he must defend the character of God by saying God could never decree pride or lust. These come from the human heart, but not from God's decree. I do have a commitment to defend the character of God from those who attempt to suggest God decrees pride or lust. But White has pre-commitments too. He is committed to theistic determinism, i.e., God sovereignly brings about all things, including these brothers' pride. So again, we see Leighton's problem with our understanding of this issue. And he, he basically says, I need to defend the character of God. God could never decree pride or lust. These, these things don't come from God. These come from libertarian free will in the human heart. And so the, the issue is, does God need us as humans to defend his character? I don't think so. I think we need to submit to the scripture's clear teaching. And it's very interesting because these issues come up in Romans chapter 9. The two main objections from the interlocutor in Romans chapter 9, Paul heads these off at the past because he anticipates that. That when he teaches God's sovereignty, when he teaches that God has a, a divine decree, he knows that those in his audience are going to stand up and say, wait a minute, Paul, I object. This doesn't sound fair. So in Romans 9.14, we find out what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. God is not unjust in choosing Jacob over Esau, in hardening Pharaoh's heart. God is, is not unjust in electing some to salvation and passing over others. God is not unjust in ordaining all things that come to pass. So, so God's never unjust in what he does in his sovereign decree. That's the first objection in Romans 9. This is unfair, Paul. This makes God unjust. Now, the second objection is the one that Leighton, in, in many um, level, against the Calvinistic understanding. Romans 9, 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? 
Why does God still find fault? Why does God punish? Or why does God hold sinners accountable? Or why does God find fault in sinners for only doing what God ordained them to do? They couldn't resist what God had ordained to happen. How can God punish those that are doing merely what God ordained for them to do? And they could not do otherwise. If, if sinners cannot resist God's sovereign decree, why does God blame them for doing what he decreed would happen? This sounds unjust. And then Paul's answer to the rhetorical question is, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Now, why does God still find fault? Why can God hold those accountable who do what he decreed to do? Let me give you the answer. Because compatibilism is true. Now, what is compatibilism? Compatibilism is this. God can sovereignly work out his decree by determining all things that come to pass so that no one acts with libertarian free will and at the same time he can hold sinners responsible for sinning. Compatibilism is basically the modern term that God's absolute and meticulous sovereignty over all things is compatible with human responsibility. The modern term is compatibilism. The older theological term if you want to go back and study Reformed theology, really starting back with Augustine and, and following it all the way up through to, to modern times, the word is concurrence. Not necessarily compatibilism, that's more of a new term. It's concurrence. Uh, Louis Burkhoff defines concurrence as this. Quote, The cooperation of the divine power with all subordinate powers according to pre-established laws of their operation, causing them to act and to act precisely as they do. The cooperation of God's sovereign power with human freedom. Concurrence. These two things can concur at the same time. These two things are compatible. And so this is part and parcel of Reformed theology, and it's in our confessions. I hold to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 3 on God's decree. It's almost word for word to the Westminster Confession of Faith. All those in Reformed theology hold to this idea of concurrence or compatibilism. So let's just read chapter 3 on God's decree from the Second London Baptist Confession because the, the Confession as well as the Westminster give precise and nuanced and clear understanding of what we mean by this biblical doctrine of God's sovereign decree and concurrence or compatibilism with human responsibility. So let's, let's read this. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he's neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, everything that occurs. But there are three fences or truths 
that qualify or further explain or clarify God's decree so that we hold to what the Bible says and do not go off the rails into two ditches. The two ditches are deism and pantheism. Deism says that God is hands off. He kind of wound up the universe and it's kind of winding its course and God is totally hands off. He's not involved at all in his creation. That's one extreme. The other extreme is pantheism, which everything is God. God is everything. And and this is a a pagan concept that that everything is part of God and everything is God-like. So... The reformers, the writers of the confessions, were very careful to define God's sovereign decree. And they give three qualifying statements or fences or guardrails, if you will. And so here's fence number one. God is not the author or the direct cause of sin. God is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. God is not the author of sin. Now this comes obviously from the scriptures. James 1, 13-15. No one when tempted should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. God tempts no one. No one can say, I am being tempted to sin because God directly tempts someone to sin or directly causes someone to sin. Now, let's listen to the Calvinist of all Calvinists. Let's listen to John Calvin, his commentary on this passage. In Calvin's commentaries on James chapter 1, listen to what John Calvin said. Quote, Scripture asserts that the reprobate are delivered up to depraved lusts. But is it because the Lord depraves or corrupts their hearts? By no means. For their hearts are subjected to depraved lust because they are already corrupt and vicious. But since God blinds or hardens, is he not the author of evil? No. But in this manner he punishes sin. God does not desire what is evil. He is not, therefore, the author of doing evil in us. There it is. God is not the author of doing evil in us. And what Calvin is saying here is that God does not have to tempt us to do evil. God is not the direct cause of sin because we're already born in sin. We are born sinners. That's already our nature. God does not have to directly influence us to do sin. God doesn't have to tempt us to sin because we are born already in that state. Now back it up. God ordained that to happen. So you can go all the way back and say God ordained the fall, God ordained the effects of the fall, and so you kick the, 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 the can all the way back, and God is ultimately decreeing that we would have fallen natures and that we would act according to that nature. So God doesn't have to be the direct author of sin. We're born with a depraved nature that's sinful to the core, and God does not have to act or work sin in us God doesn't force us to sin. God doesn't cause us to sin. God doesn't tempt us to sin. We freely sin due to our own nature, the lust of our own hearts. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Man and Satan are the authors of sin. They directly sinned, not God. 
And it's very interesting. Back in the process of the Westminster Assembly, when they were drafting the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, in 1645, the Westminster Assembly, with unanimous consent, they were unanimous on this, they published a pamphlet responding to a book by a, a pastor named John Archer. And this pastor, John Archer, argued that God was, in fact, the author of sin. And so there was this view out there by this one man, John Arthur. He was arguing that God is the author of sin. And the, and the Westminster Assembly said, no, whoa, time out. Wait a minute. This is not biblical. We're going to unanimously refute this. And so this pamphlet was called, and of course, back during the Puritan days, they had long titles for their pamphlets. This is the, the title of the pamphlet. A short declaration of the assembly divines by way of detestation of this abominable and blasphemous opinion that God is and had a hand in and is the author of the sinfulness of people. So they call this an abominable and blasphemous opinion. The bottom line is that this pamphlet was what the Bible teaches and what the Reformed teaches, the Reformed churches teach, that Satan and man himself are the only causes or authors of sin. However, at the same time, the Bible also teaches that God ordained the fall. God ordained the effects of the fall. And what are the effects of the fall? Total inability. Slavery to sin. Now, because God ordaining the fall to happen protects him from being the direct cause or the author of sin. Adam sinned freely. God did not force him to do it. And because Adam sinned, we inherit Adam's sinful nature, and we sin freely as well. We are our own authors of sin. God does not tempt us to sin. God does not force us to sin. God does not have any part in our sin. It comes from ourselves. But that self that it comes from, that was ordained by God to happen. Okay. Here's the second fence in the 1689 and the Westminster as far as God's decree in this whole issue of concurrence or compatibilism. Fence number two. God's absolute decree does not violate man's free will as he is still responsible and acts according to his nature. This decree doesn't violate man's free will. Man is still responsible for his nature. God does not force or coerce desires. Now here's the objection. The objection is that if God decrees our every choice, then he would be forcing us to act as we do, which is coercion, forcing us. And therefore, if God forces us or God coerces us, that removes our responsibility. We are not responsible, we're not culpable, we're not accountable anymore for our choices because God is forcing us to make those choices. And how could he hold us responsible for that which he decreed or forced us to do? It's illogical, it's unjust, it impugns God's character, it makes God a moral monster to punish us for causing us to sin. Now here's the premise. Basically, the premise is that if a person's choice is coerced, then that person cannot be morally responsible for the sin. Okay, what then is coercion? It can be defined as persuading an unwilling person to do something against their will by using force or threats. Now, if God decrees and determines all things that come to pass, 
is he at the same time coercing us or forcing us or working in us, i.e. a gun to our head, to do something against our will? And if so, how can we be held responsible? Here's the, the assumption by provisionists and Arminians and others that don't hold to concurrence or compatibilism. If God decrees and determines human choices, it must involve some type of coercion against the sinner's will. Coercion then must be the only means that God can accomplish His decree. And we would answer this that God can determine our choices not against our wills, but through our wills. And let me explain that. God does not directly, that's the key word, God does not directly threaten or coerce us, but He can providentially influence the human heart to willingly accomplish His purpose in all things. Nothing in compatibilism requires or necessitates coercion. Does a determined choice necessarily equal a coerced choice? In other words, does God always stick a gun to our head and say, you will act in this way? Or does God determine our nature and we act according to our nature? Not against our nature, but in concurrence with our nature. And those choices that we make, we make freely, but at the same time, those choices that we freely make are part of God's decree. Now, John Owen, the venerable, Pur venerable Puritan, probably the most theologically astute of all the Puritans, one of his first books that came out was a display of Arminianism. A display of Arminianism. And in this book, he refutes a lot of the arguments that, really, that provisionists and Arminians are making today. So there's nothing new under the sun. But I want to give you a quote by John Owen because I think it summarizes our view very succinctly. And this is a long quote, but I want you to listen to it. He says, God's predetermination of secondary causes is that effectual working of His, according to His eternal purpose, whereby through some agents, as the wills of men, are causes most free and indefinite, or unlimited lords of their own actions in respect of their internal principle of operation, that is, their nature, they are yet all in respect of His decree and by His powerful working determined to this or that effect in particular. Not that they are compelled to do this or hindered from doing that, but are inclined and disposed to do this or that according to their proper manner of working. That is most freely. For such testimonies are everywhere obvious in Scripture of the stirring up of men's wills minds and bending and inclining them to do different things of the governing of the secret thoughts and motions of the heart as cannot by any means be referred to a naked permission with the government of external actions or to a general influence whereby they should have power to do this or that or anything else wherein as some suppose his whole providence consists now what in the world does that quote mean it means that men are free to act according to their nature. They're not compelled to act against their nature, and they're not hindered from acting against their nature. Men act according to their nature, and what they end up doing is exactly what God decreed for them to do, 
without God violating their free will and without God being the author of sin. And so this is where the third fence comes in, which really relates to Genesis 50-20 and is the whole issue of where our point of contention is. And this is fence number three. God uses secondary causes to accomplish his degree. Decree. Secondary causation. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is the Lord's alone. Okay, God determines what that dice is going to roll to, but somebody has to roll the dice. And so there's the secondary cause. God doesn't directly roll the dice from heaven. Humans roll the dice, but what ends up happening is God's sovereign decree. Now, let's go back to Genesis 50.20, and let's deal with the text at hand. What does Joseph say to his brothers? As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the evil, for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, I want you to pay careful attention to the words used here by Joseph. Does God simply respond to evil actions after the fact and then somehow works them out for good, or does God have a sovereign intention or design in everything that happens joseph does not say this joseph does not say god used your evil for good no he says god meant that evil for good you meant that evil god meant that evil now let's ask the question what does that word meant mean not uses but meant In Hebrew, it literally means to weave. But in this case, it means to devise, to determine, to plan, or strategize. It was often used when an army was going to war and how they would put together a strategy or battle plan before they went into combat. So the brothers determined and planned evil against Joseph by selling him into slavery. They were acting freely, in doing this evil. No outside force caused them, coerced them, directly impacted them to act this way. They acted out of their own jealousy, their own hateful nature, to intentionally purpose this evil. Yet, at the same time, God didn't just use their evil. He had a divine purpose and intention and strategy as well. John Piper, in his book, Providence, big book, comments on Genesis 50-20. I think it's a a good quote from John Piper. Let's listen to what, what Piper has to say. Quote, I have said before and reaffirm here that we do not need to comprehend the mysteries of this intersection of divine and human. What we are called to affirm is that human sinful willing is not simply used or managed by God after it has happened. Rather, this very sinful willing is meant or intended by God for righteous saving purposes. Nevertheless, God means or intends or wills the sinful human willing in such a way that he does not sin, but in perfect wisdom and righteousness and goodness aims at and achieves a good end and is himself doing good at every point. I think it's a good summary. So there are some non-Calvinistic ways to interpret Genesis 50 and this evil that the brothers meant. They could say God uses the evil for good. 
God merely uses it. God didn't have a sovereign intention in it. It, it happened freely out of the brother's free will, and after the fact, God merely uses that to work out good. Or God adapts to the evil while it's being committed. He adapts to the evil. He works it out the same, same way as God uses it. But open theists would say that God responds to the evil after the fact and does his best to try to work it out. In all cases, God does not have a sovereign decree in that evil. He uses the evil. He works it out after the fact, but before the fact, there was no intention. Now, Leighton Flowers again saying that God intends good through evil isn't uniquely Calvinistic. What he would say is that God determining man's evil motives is. Again, God can determine the motives of these brothers without directly being the cause of those evil motives. Again, secondary causation. What's the primary cause? God decreed the fall. What's the primary cause? God decreed the effects of the fall. What are we born with? We're born with evil inclinations. And so God can sovereignly determine for the brothers to do what they did and those brothers to act freely to do what they did out of their own nature without God being the direct author of sin, without God violating their free will, forcing them to do what they did, and it comes about through secondary causes. Now, let's think about Job because Job addresses this very carefully. We have God ordaining Job's suffering but if you read the narrative, you have two secondary causes. God ordains the suffering. But number one, God permits Satan to take everything away from Job except for his life. In Job 1, 9-12, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan could only do what God ordained for him to do. So ultimately, who ordained the suffering of Job? Whose divine decree was it that Job suffer? God. You, you kick the, the can all the way back. You don't get God off the hook. God does it. Now, does God directly do it? No, the secondary causation is Satan. God allows or permits or ordains Satan to do it. Now, the second question is, does Satan directly do it himself? Well, there's actually another secondary cause that's even underneath Satan. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans raided and killed Job's servants. The Sabaeans and Chaldeans, these, these pagan nations, they acted freely in doing what pagan raiders do. They attack and pillage. Did Satan directly make them do it? No, they acted freely. Was Satan behind their doing? Yes. So who was behind these secondary causes of evil for Job? It was God. Job 1.21. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, Obviously, Job has no idea what's going on in the cosmic theater between Satan 
and the Lord. All Job understands is this is from the direct hand of the Lord. Who does Job attribute this wrongdoing and evil to? Does, does Job ever blame Satan? Satan did this. Does he even blame the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans? No, he doesn't blame the secondary causes who directly inflicted the evil, but he attributes it to the primary cause, God. This is God's doing. God ordained this. God blessed me. God took away. Now, did God directly do it? No. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans do it. Did Satan have a hand in that? Yes. But God used secondary means to accomplish his divine decree. And what was his divine decree? The suffering of Job, without being the direct cause of the evil. And at the end, when Job repents and comes to understand the sovereignty of God in Job 42.11, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comfort in him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him, and each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Now it's very interesting. Notice at the very end of the book of Job, who is attributed to the evil that came upon Job? The Lord. That the Lord brought upon him. So at the end of Job, does Satan get blamed? Do the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans get blamed? No, God is blamed for the evil. Now, did God directly cause the evil? No. Was God the author of evil? No. Did God force Satan or the Sabaeans and Chaldeans to do what they wanted to do? No. Did God employ secondary causes? Yes. So you see these three fences being um, illustrated here in the book of Job. That God has a sovereign decree that's unchangeable, that, that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. But number one, he's not the author of sin or the direct cause of sin. Number two, he doesn't violate men's free will. He doesn't coerce or make them do what they do. They act freely according to their nature. And number three, he uses secondary causes to bring about his divine decree. Let's think about other places where God actually ordains evil to happen. It comes about through secondary causes, and then God actually ends up punishing or, or disciplining the person that does, does what God ordained them to do. In 2 Samuel 16, 10-11, But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai, and to all his servants, Behold, my son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Okay, this is when Shimei curses David. Now, is it a sin to curse God's anointed king? Yes. Does Shimei curse David because the Lord told him to do so? Yes. Here we have the Lord telling a person to do something sinful because it's God's ordained purpose. And David doesn't fight against it, but accepts it from the Lord. In other words, David was a compatibilist. He understood that God could ordain an evil act, and a person can act freely, and yet God not be the author of sin by ordaining the sin. Now, let's talk also about secondary causes when it comes to David, because you have... When David did the census, 
Okay, when David, at the end of David's life, he got prideful, he numbered his army. And you've got two accounts of this in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, and they almost appear to be in conflict, but we know the Bible's not in conflict. We know the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. There are no um, contradictions. It's absolutely true in everything that it says. 2 Samuel 24, 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Okay, here it says the Lord incited David to do the census. In 1 Chronicles 21, 1. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Okay, apparent contradiction. Who incited David to number Israel? Was it the Lord or was it Satan? Well, this is just a parallel of what we saw in the book of Job. God can sovereignly decree David to do something, and and God can incite or influence David to do that, not directly causing him to sin or be the author of sin, but by influencing or ordaining Satan to be the secondary cause to work in David's heart to do that. And then God would punish David for doing what God ordained him to do. You also have Ezekiel 14, 9. And if the prophet is deceived and speaks a word, I, the Lord, have deceived that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and will destroy him from the midst of my people Israel. This is interesting. Is it against God's law to be a false prophet? Yes, it's punishable by death. What if that false prophet is only doing what God ordained that false prophet to do? Very interesting here. God basically says here that he's deceived the prophet. He's caused the prophet to speak a deceptive word. And then God's going to turn around and judge that prophet for doing what God ordained him to do. So we have biblical examples of God ordaining something to happen that's sinful. A person cannot resist God's will, and God still finds fault. Now, God ordained false prophecy as a form of judgment on the false prophets. Did these prophets know they were being deceived by God to prophesy falsely? Probably not. They were simply acting out of their nature, their inclinations, at the time to do what they wanted to do, and yet it was sovereignly being determined by God. What about Judas? Luke twenty two twenty two, For the Son of Man goes at his, at his, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Was it predetermined for Jesus to be betrayed by Judas? Yes. Judas was the son of perdition. It was prophesied, it was predetermined that Judas would betray Jesus. Did Judas act freely in betraying Jesus? Yes. God predetermined for Judas to do an evil action. And at the same time, God can hold Judas accountable for that action. And it said Satan entered the heart of Judas. It's in John's Gospel, I think. So God is not the direct cause of Judas' sin. God's not the author of Judas's sin. Judas sinned himself freely. God did not violate Judas's free will. Judas acted out of the nature of his heart to do what he wanted to do. And he did exactly what he wanted to do at the same time fulfilled what God wanted to have happen. Let's think about the cross. Acts 2, 22 through 23. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, who is the direct cause of the death of Christ? You, you Jewish men. He, he was killed by the hands, literal hands of lawless men. He was nailed to the cross by the hands of Roman soldiers. But this was the definite plan of God. God ordained the cross from before the foundation of the world. And God did not directly sin. God did not violate the free will of Judas or Pilate or Herod or the Roman soldiers. They acted freely out of their nature to do what they wanted to do. And secondary causes, they're the ones who literally nailed Jesus to the cross, but the whole time they were accomplishing God's definite plan. And it's repeated again in Acts, Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city, talking about Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now this is a prayer to the Father. The cross was God's predestined plan to take place. But... The prayer here lists four human agents that were the secondary cause or the direct sinners that put Jesus to death. Herod, number one. Pontius Pilate, number two. The Gentiles, that would be the Roman soldiers, number three. And the peoples of Israel, that would be the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the, the Sanhedrin. So God had a sovereign predestined plan for Jesus to die on the cross. Was God the author of their sin? No. Did God force them or violate their free will and cause them by putting a gun to their head to do what they wanted to do? No, they acted freely out of their nature. Did Jesus die on the cross because God directly put him there or was it through secondary causation, through all of these events? Yes. So those three fences that we see that the confession gives are crucial in understanding concurrence or compatibilism that God has an absolute, unchangeable, free decree that whatsoever comes to pass is determined by Him, and it will come to pass. Yet, at the same time, number one, God's not the author of sin. Number two, God doesn't violate free will or coerce people to do things against their will. And number three, God uses secondary causes to accomplish His will without being the direct cause, so that in the end, His decree is accomplished. Listen to Calvin again. He says this, quote, Satan and evildoers are not so effectively the instruments of God that they do not also act in their own behalf. For we must not suppose that God works in a sinful man as if he were a stone or a piece of wood, but he uses him as a thinking creature according to the quality of his nature, which God has given him. Thus, when we say that God works in sinners, that does not prevent them from working also in their own behalf. What Calvin's saying is that God doesn't just directly, like, like sinners are a piece of wood or a piece of stone, and God's chiseling them and, and directly acting upon them to act the way they do, and we're mere, we're mere robots. They didn't have robots back then, but mere robots or puppets. But that God uses secondary causation that they are thinking creatures acting according to their nature that God has given them. 
Okay, so where did that nature come from? That nature came from the fall. God ordained the nature. And so when, when humans act out of their fallen nature and God influences that nature, God can do so indirectly. God can do so by decreeing their nature without them being puppets or merely worked upon as a piece of stone or wood. So Calvin's got that same careful thinking. Wilhelmus Abrakel, he was a Dutch theologian that has written um, the, the Christian's Reasonable Service, and he's given some good um, answers to this. He gives, a gr- he gives a great summary of what we would call concurrence or compatibilism. He says this, quote, Every creature of necessity depends on God in all his activity, and the outcome of every event will necessarily be according to God's will. God, having most certainly decreed everything, executes everything irresistibly. And here's the point. This is where it gets very clear. Not in an unnatural, compulsory manner, but in harmony with the nature of his creatures. Therefore, relative to God's decree, everything happens of necessity, even though there is contingency relative to secondary causes. Okay, he just, again, unpacks what the Second London Baptist Confession, what Calvin says, what what all those in Reformed theology teach. God will execute his decree irresistibly. It will come to pass. But God doesn't do this in an unnatural or compulsory manner. He doesn't force people to sin. He's not the direct cause of sin. He doesn't create or work selfishness in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. He does this in concurrence or in harmony or compatible with the nature of his creatures, that fallen nature that he decreed would happen. And so when these sinners act according to their fallen nature, they're doing so freely, but they're doing what God ordained to come about. So there's nothing illogical or unbiblical about compatibilism. The, the, the charge I often hear is that compatibilism is illogical at best. It doesn't make sense that these two things would be simultaneously happening. That, that's a better understanding or a better argument against. And then at worst, they would say it's unjust. God cannot sovereignly decree all things that come to pass, decree for a sinner to sin, and then turn around and hold that sinner responsible for the sin that God decreed that they would do. So does the Bible teach these two simultaneous truths? Yes. Truth number one, God sovereignly and meticulously determines all things that come to pass through his eternal decree that he is providentially working out in time, space, and history. He's doing so in a manner that, number one, he's not the author of sin. Number two, he's not violating the free will of sinners or people by forcing them to do what they don't want to do. And number three, he does it through secondary causes. And so the second truth is that sinners are morally responsible for their actions. These two things are not in conflict. We may not understand how these two truths are compatible. We just need to affirm that they are. God oftentimes does not give us all the information we need to, be in the, to have in the Bible. There are a lot of things that are simply asserted or affirmed as true, and we must accept them. And they may not logically make sense, or they may seem unfair or irrational. They may seem counterintuitive. They may not seem to be the way we would want them to be. But we have to bend our wills to the clear 
revelation of Scripture. And so again, John Calvin sums up what our attitude should be towards this truth of compatibilism or concurrence. He says, quote, Our true wisdom is to embrace with meek docility, that's humility, and without reservation, whatever the Holy Scriptures have delivered. Those who indulge their petulance, a petulance manifestly directed against God, are undeserving of a longer refutation. In other words, he says, the best wisdom is to be humble and meek and without reservation accept what the Holy Scriptures say without reservation. Don't argue against it. Don't fight against it. Accept it. And so the Bible does teach that God sovereignly determines all things whatsoever come to pass. At the same time, humans are free to act according to their nature and can be held responsible for doing what they wanted to do. And God is not unjust. It's not illogical. So in the one act, Genesis 50-20, God can ordain not only the evil action of selling the brothers into slavery, but God can ordain the evil intentions of the hearts of the brothers to sell their brother into slavery without, number one, being the author of those brothers' sin. They sinned on their own. Number two, God did not violate their free will. They acted freely. God did not coerce them. God did not force them. And number three, it was a secondary cause to bring about what God wanted to happen. Not after the fact, not using their evil, not adapting to their evil, but God had a sovereign intention in not only the action, but the attitudes of the brothers. So, we go back to the very beginning of the two problems that Leighton Flowers had with our understanding of this passage of Scripture. And he would say, proof that God intends all evil events to happen does not prove that God determines all evil events to happen. We would say, yes, God determines all events to happen, both good and bad. And number two, he'd say, proof that God intends an evil event to happen does not prove that God determines the motive or desires of all the parties involved in that event. And we'd say, yes, God does determine the motives and the desires of all the parties in the event, but not so in the way that you think. God is not the direct cause of those motives. God is not the author of sin in those motives. God does not violate or coerce free will in those motives. God uses secondary causation in those motives. But God ordained the fall, and God ordained the nature that we're born with, and humans act freely according to their nature that God ordained to happen. So you can never get God off the hook. God is sovereign over all things. And so we either bow to this, we accept it with humility, or we try to work around it and put humans or human reasoning or libertarian free will at center stage instead of God's sovereign decree. Well, I hope this has been helpful in interacting with Genesis 50:20, and it does teach that God is determining all things that come to pass. Well, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Blessings to you and your family. I appreciate you as podcast listeners. It's always a blessing to get feedback from you. If you have any ideas or thoughts on a future podcast, I'd love for you to contact me. You can go to seancole.net to find my contact information. You can find me on Twitter or what they call X. You can find me on Facebook. We'd love to get in touch with you. And until next time, will we all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.